you are listening to the Revive Church Podcast. We pray that this sermon blesses you and enhances your walk with God. Feel free to come worship with us on a Sunday morning, or you can learn more about us online at revivechurch.org. Good morning. So we've uh, taken a little bit of a break from our um, series on John, and we're taking a look at the, uh, the core principles that we have incorporated into our mission statement as a church. We wanted to take a look and make sure that uh, we understand and uh, learn to apply these principles in all aspects of our daily lives. So a couple weeks ago, Russ introduced us to um, being consumed in Christ and what uh, he was talking about in terms of being consumed in Christ. And then last week, Stephen talked to us about um, being people of God's holy word. So our mission statement states, with hearts and minds consumed in Christ, we boldly prioritize, pursue, and proclaim new life in Christ, living together in the bright light of God's own glory and holy word. Stephen last week reminded us that it's more than just reading the word. That to be consumed with God's word means you don't just look at Sunday morning's text or glance at the scripture once or twice during the week. Why are we doing the Bible the year, through the year Bible study? So that we are in the word daily. It requires us to actually do more than just read. We have to understand what it is that we're reading. And we have to take it and apply it in, incorpor- in incorporating it into who we are. So today we're going to look at another of our core principles, graciousness. This is a difficult word, a difficult concept. Graciousness requires us to look past ourselves and into the lives of those around us. It demands that we consider the situations and circumstances of those who struggle and suffer with their sin. It requires us to reach out and offer the hand of companionship and mercy to people who are lost. It makes us step out of our own bubble and feel the reality that others face. Today I want to look into the what, why, and how of graciousness. I want each of you to walk out of here having a sense of how you are to exhibit the graciousness that God extended to us through his son Jesus Christ. So to start, I think we need to understand the definition of graciousness. In essence, it means to be merciful or compassionate. It is to forbear judgment and to accept people understanding uh, to accept people understanding their shortcomings and faults and not to hold that against them. It is to love them in spite of the warts and the blemishes. It's strange our culture these days is so about calling people out for their shortcomings and flaws. We've forgotten what it is like to be compassionate and accepting of other people. The word grace itself means to show mercy or pardon. We need to do more than other, other than just lip service to this. We need to actually live it out. We need to be the people of God, offering the hand of acceptance to those who are marginalized by the greater community. So we have the what. Graciousness is to accept people where they are, recognize their struggle with sin and the temptations of the world. Graciousness 
is an undeserved kindness. So let's look at the why. We can find many instances in Scripture where God has shown us grace, his mercy to us. In Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Joseph is sold by his brothers to passing travelers who turn around and sell him into slavery in Egypt. And if you're not familiar with the story, Joseph gets sold by his brothers who are very jealous of him because he's the favored son. And so they sell him. He gets sold into service to Pharaoh in Egypt. He proves himself so trustworthy that Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. Runs into a little trouble when Pharaoh's wife tries to uh, chase after him. Gets thrown in jail but gets called back up because he has a gift of interpreting dreams. So he interprets Pharaoh's dream that God had brought him to talk about a famine coming in the land. So, and, and eventually Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt to buy food and Joseph demonstrates grace. So in Genesis 45, which is the tail end of the story, it starts about the middle of Genesis 41 and goes through about 40, the, through the end of 45. And in Genesis 45, four through eight, read, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord to all his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. It's a demonstration of God showing tremendous grace. The hated brother, the hated little brother, they were going to kill him, but they sold him off into slavery, and yet he ends up, through God's grace, being able to save his family and many others through the time of the famines. Later on, we see multiple references in the Psalms of David praising God for his graciousness and mercy in the midst of David's afflictions. Psalm 86, 15 through 17 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see me and be put to shame because of you, Lord, have helped me and have comforted me. In Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And finally, in Psalm 145, 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. John, the gospel writer, reminds us that grace came through Jesus Christ. In John 1, 14 through 17, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is only only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But the ultimate demonstration of God's grace came in the form of our redemption through Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, we read, For while we were still weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Starting to see a pattern here? And in case anyone thinks that they've done anything to deserve this incredible grace, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richnesses of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So we've received this marvelous gift of grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which bridged the gap between God and man that we might be reconciled to him. Many years ago, MasterCard had a series of commercials where a scene would play out between people and they would list the cost of various parts of what was going on in the underlying scene. Something like this. Bottle of wine, $25. Bouquet of flowers, $40. Picnic dinner, $65. Watching the sunset on the ocean, priceless. Well, God's grace is the thing that is priceless. People often rely on their financial resources to feel secure. Thinking that have the, having the ability to buy whatever they need means that they will be okay. But some things money can't buy, like God's grace. The price tag is blank. There's no way to put a value on the immeasurable riches of grace Paul talks about in Ephesians. So why would God do this? In Hebrews 2, 6 through 9, we read, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Again, why would God do this? Gospel of John, a familiar passage to many of you, Jesus tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
God loves us so much, he couldn't bear to see us suffer the wages of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift through grace and mercy. He offered us graciousness by taking our sin upon himself and becoming the sacrificial lamb of the new covenant. All our sins pinned on Jesus so that we avoid our deserved punishment. This is amazing news. We are redeemed by the graciousness of God. Hallelujah. Amen. So what are we doing about it? We're called to live a life that emulates Christ. We're to be an example of his compassion, his mercy, his grace to everyone we encounter. Not only in church, but at school, at work, in our marriages, in our friendships, at the ballpark, at the theater, everywhere. Our lives should demonstrate what it is to be a servant, what it is to be consumed in Christ. God's character should exude from every pore of our body. After all, it's the least we can do in exchange for the marvelous gift of his graciousness to us. So, how do we do this? 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 suggests, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We must adopt a servant's heart. We need to extend the grace which we have received through Christ to those who are in desperate need of such grace. We need to love the unloved. We need to see people the way God sees people. We need to meet their practical needs to the extent that we are able. Easy, right? These words make sense to us. We know what they're trying to say. But ultimately, it's the translation to action that gets a little sticky. Sometimes the easiest way to illustrate a point is through a story. Jesus himself used parables to explain the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So perhaps a story will help with your translation to action. Now this is one I stole off the internet. No idea if it's true, but it, it's a great illustration. And some of you may have seen this. A pastor transformed himself into a homeless person and went to the church that he was to be introduced as the head pastor at that morning. He walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. We need to be having ourselves fill for 30 minutes before worship. Just a comment. He, uh, only three people said hello to him. Most looked the other way. 
He asked people for change to buy food because he was hungry. Not one gave him anything. He went into the sanctuary to sit down in the front of the church and was told by the ushers that he would need to get up and go sit at the back of the church. He said hello to people as they walked in, but was greeted with cold stares and dirty looks from people looking down on him and judging him. He sat in the back of the church and listened to the church announcements for the week. He listened as new visitors were welcomed into the church that morning, but no one acknowledged that he was new. He watched people around him continue to look his way with stares that said, you are not welcome here. Then the elders of the church went to the podium to make the announcement. They said they were excited to introduce the new pastor to the church, of the church to the congregation, saying we would like to introduce our new pastor. The congregation stood up and looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. The homeless man sitting in the back stood up and started walking down the aisle. That's when all the clapping stopped and the church went silent. With all eyes on him, he walked up to the altar and reached for the microphone. He stood there for a moment and then reached so, uh, recited so elegantly a passage from Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or invite you in, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. After he recited this, he introduced himself as their new pastor, and told the congregation what he'd experienced that morning. Many began to cry and bow their heads in shame. Today I see a gathering of people here, but I do not see a church of Jesus Christ. The world has enough people that look the other way. What the world needs is disciples of Jesus that can follow his teachings and live as he did. When will you decide to become disciples? He then dismissed the service until the following Sunday as his sermon had been given. This is hard to listen to, right? It's hard to listen to because too often we can see ourselves in that story. It's very easy to look the other way, but it's not what we're called to do. And I know I personally struggle with this. Um, and it's a challenge for me to stop and say, no, you need to think about what Jesus would do in this situation. Not to say that I always stop and do that, but that's what I have to have go through my mind every single time because otherwise I'm not living out the call to graciousness. I'm not living out 
the call to graciousness. Probably one of the most significant demonstrations of graciousness lived out was something my parents did when we lived in Houston. I'm not sure how the connection was made, but when I was about five or six years old, we started visiting a Colombian immigrant family in the projects in Houston. It was a family by the name of Gavilia. We'd go about every two to three weeks to visit and spend time with them. They had three kids that my sister and I would play with while, the, while we were there, and the adults socialized. At the time, I didn't really think much of the fact that we were in this poor, rough area of town, and believe me, the projects in Houston are really nasty. But some of the images I recall are very depressing to think about now. My mother actually grew up in East Los Angeles, and, and we were growing up, she would regularly take us into the city to remind us of the blessings and the, the um, the good things that we had so that we would never forget that not everyone had that same situation. I think of the risks my parents took, including with my younger sister and I, going into a violent, unstable part of town. My parents, over time, helped the father to get a better job. And soon after, they helped by co-signing on a car loan so that they could have a car instead of always using public transportation. I'm pretty sure we also provided a lot of basics, like new clothes for the family and extra gifts at birthdays and Christmas. Sometime later, my parents told me we were going to help them move into their new house. Now, their new house didn't look much like my house. We lived in a nice suburb, very close to the uh, Johnson Space Center in south, uh, southeast of Houston. Great big ranch house that I wouldn't mind having today, actually. Their new house was in a pretty run-down neighborhood in inner-city Houston. It was fairly small, especially for a family of five. Pretty old, and it, too, needed a lot of work. But for them, it was a castle. It was an opportunity to call something their own. My parents have spent the few years that we lived in Houston helping this family by providing for needs, befriending people who were new to this country and probably intimidated by a new culture, a new language. They demonstrated Christ's love to this family who is socially, economically, and culturally very different from us. I don't think they got a single thing out of helping this family other than the joy that they were able to witness as the family was able to move ahead and improve their situation. At the time, I was completely unaware of what we were doing. We moved back to California when I was only nine years old. But as I look at how we're called to demonstrate graciousness, this story comes to mind nearly 50 years later. It obviously made an impression on my young mind. So this is the way we're called to live. We need to take some risks. We need to get out of our comfort zone, out of our little bubble. We need to open our eyes to the needs around us and be the beacon of God's graciousness that he offers to all people 
Because if we are going to proclaim that we are consumed in Christ and proclaim that we are a people of graciousness, then we have to do this. We have to do this. So I challenge you this week, be aware, be alert for the needs that you see around you. We live in a large urban environment and the needs are enormous. But it's very easy to go about our way and just walk past the needs. Take time, pay attention, and offer God's hand of graciousness. That's what it is to be a people of graciousness. Let's pray. Father God, just ask that you impress on our hearts the importance of what it means to be a people of graciousness, of the importance of sharing what you have freely given to us, the importance of being aware of those needs that are often hard to see, but if we would just stop and slow down, as Russ told us, and we would see some of those needs. Lord, make us willing to step out and to address those who are outside the uh, mainstream of our culture and give us strength and courage to take those steps. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.